to the Power of Sports podcast, where the jocks and geeks go together like peanut butter and chocolate. On today's episode, we will hear from Ed Odovin, who is the sports editor at Japan Forward and the author of the book, Going 15 Rounds with Jerry Eisenberg, which is a great collection of writings about one of the best sports columnists of all time. Previously, Ed worked for the Arizona Daily Sun and the Japan Times, and he regularly contributes to English language publications all over the world. One of his most recent stories was about Rui Hachimura, the superstar Japanese basketball player who plays for the NBA's Washington Wizards and whose rise to stardom has put basketball on the Japanese map. In fact, Ed has watched and cataloged basketball's rise to national prominence in Japan, so it was my great pleasure to sit down with him recently to learn about his love of sports and sports writing and about Japan's performance at the recent Olympic Games. Can you see me? I can hear you and I can see you. Thank you, Ed, so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate this opportunity to interview you again. And I've been looking forward to catching up with you happy since to, we last spoke in, in, happy to in be March. Here. Thank you. How are you doing today? Pretty good. Yeah, I, it's a normal week, whatever that means in this particular era. I know that uh, you're not just a sports writer, but you're also interested in sports writers. And you've written this book which I have right here, which is a great book. I recommend all my listeners. It's called Going 15 Rounds with Jerry Eisenberg, a collection of interviews with the legendary columnist. And it's got this great photo, which my listeners can't see, but it's a picture of Eisenberg pretending to punch Muhammad Ali in the face, which is a great cover for the book. It seems to me that this was a labor of love doing these interviews with Eisenberg. So I want to get into that. I want to talk to you about the Olympics and talk about your journey to becoming a sports writer and covering Japanese sports. But before I do, I, I always start these shows by talking to my guests about their first experiences in sports or with sports. Did you play sports growing up? Did you watch sports? What sports were they? And when did you first fall in love with sports? Probably the earliest I can remember in in watching baseball, which is really the first sport I really loved. I was probably five or six years old. And growing up in uh, northern New Jersey and having a lot of relatives still living in the city, New York, where I was born, like just traveling back and forth, like with the radio on. And both my grandfathers would read the newspaper a lot. And uh, my dad's dad lived in Jersey and my mom's dad lived in New York and we would go visit them for dinner at either place and they'd have the baseball game on the TV or maybe on the radio and you'd have newspapers stacked around the house and yeah I can remember just like I guess the habit was like yeah they would look at the box scores or look at the sports pages in the New York Post or the Newark Star Ledger or whatnot mm-hmm. and like, okay what the heck are they doing this is a cool thing mm-hmm. and so I was interested in the literature and just the knowledge the information of sports, as well as wanting to play like wiffle ball as a kid or kickball on the asphalt at the school playground or even in the parking lot. I remember playing Nerf football, going out for a toss with my cousins or neighborhood friends. I played Little League a little bit, but it wasn't until I was in fifth or sixth grade 
I played pickup basketball a little bit. Um, I think the first organized sport I played on a team was soccer and maybe second and third grade. And it was fun. I remember there was a documentary about Pele that all of us got together and watched with, with mm -hmm. one of the coaches. I think mm. we had ice cream and chocolate cake or something. And it was uh -huh. on the day of a game. I don't remember if it was before or after the game, but yeah, that was fun. Hearing yeah. about this guy who was just a couple of years earlier had retired, probably the second retirement from the Cosmos. And uh, just hearing about how he had scored like a thousand goals in his career. Oh, he was incredible. It, it, it was like, it was just a mind blowing number. Now I always probably put it to fence because uh, I was not incredibly athletic or gifted moving laterally. Also, I had bad hand-eye coordination, to be honest with you. And I was born legally blind in my right eye. To describe it quickly, I'm really far-sighted in my left eye and really near-sighted in my right eye. Okay. And my prescriptions of both eyes, my, my glasses are very different. And I was very cross-eyed as a kid and I had eye surgery at age two and at age 12 to try to correct the muscles in my right eye. And it gradually got better, but I wasn't a particularly gifted athlete. And what about sports writing? And when, when, when did you start reading different sports books? And when did you start taking interest in the literature that surrounds sports? I, I guess probably elementary school. I loved reading the baseball preview magazines. And if I would get a book as a kid, like a Christmas present or a birthday present, I would devour it and following the teams, especially the Yankees and the Knicks. New York Rangers and hockey and football, basically everybody, uh, yes. NFL. I remember I was assigned a book report in second or third grade, and we were challenged to find a subject we were interested in and then do a pretty basic summary of it in maybe two or three type pages. The first book report I remember doing was a biography of uh, Babe Ruth. And this is a book that I picked out of the library myself. Both my grandfathers would recall seeing Babe Ruth or even after he stopped playing, they would remember their own recollections of Babe Ruth. And one of my great aunts who lived to be 95 or so years old, remembered, oh yeah, I saw Babe Ruth play in Cleveland or I saw him play at Yankee Stadium. And it made a big impression on me. Absolutely. But I guess that book report was a catalyst to looking at the, the newspaper and magazines, more so just for information, but also for the literature and just like to, get to learn the names of the people eventually. And so was baseball, was it the Yankees or the Mets? Or sounds like baseball was your first love in terms of uh, watching maybe. Yankees, but I also enjoyed, uh, there was a different element to the way the Mets were covered. And they were the second team in the city. They were the upstart a couple of decades before. They were either really good or really bad. So there was a less serious nature of coverage of the, of the Mets, I thought. Maybe the way it was portrayed by the fans. Okay. It was still life or death like baseball, but I, I guess there was a, less of an expectation year in and year out to be competitive. There were some of the covers that was a bit more lighthearted, I think, with uh, Ralph Kiner used to do a show and maybe some of the play-by-play -play was a little less serious. The first game I was ever supposed to go to was in April of 81, mm -hmm. and it would have been for my seventh birthday. Mm -hmm. And the season, there was a big strike uh -huh. that's, that, that summer. So it turned out that I didn't go to a game that year or the next year. But for my ninth birthday in 83, my father, my grandfather, my younger brother and I went to a Mets-Phillies game opening day at Shea. And the two starting pitchers were Tom Seaver for the Mets say, Tom Seaver, and Steve sure. Carlton for the Phillies. Wow. I saw two Hall of Famers in my first ever game at the stadium. What an introduction to live professional baseball.
And I remember some of my classmates were jealous because I didn't go to school that day. Yeah, I would have been too. It was a weekday. I, I think it was a Tuesday or a Wednesday, but it was a weekday and it was, it was a classic 80s game before really the power, the home run surge in the 90s. And then yeah. even now with, what is it now? You expect a home run or a strikeout That's basically. Right. But this is like a two to one, three to one kind of game, like a couple big plays. The Mets became pretty interesting in the mid eighties because Daryl Strawberry was Darryl a rookie Strawberry, in, of in 83. And then the next year became Dwight Gooden's first year. Yes. So I followed the Yankees the most closely over the years. But the Mets have had some really interesting players. Yes, absolutely. And those players, they really keep your interest, don't they? I mean, Doc Gooden and Daryl yeah. Strawberry, they were larger-than-life characters. Yeah. And so what brought you to Japan? I know you started your career as a sports writer before Japan, but what was it that brought you to Japan? The, the most recent job I had before moving to Japan at the Arizona Daily Sun in Flagstaff, we were a very small staff. And I had moved up from uh, reporter to assistant sports editor to sports editor mm -hmm. in a three-person department. The other guys had left. And I wanted to have the opportunity to travel for some big assignments. That was a dream. Like the 2002 Winter Olympics, the sports section would not be issued a press pass for the Olympics. So if you apply for a pass and you're, let's say your circulation is 20,000 or less, mm -hmm. The odds of getting a pass are very small. I see. Because the number of press credentials given is based on the size of your paper and probably the, the number of times you cover the Olympics over the decades. I see. So it was like a, a disappointing reality that, yeah, I can do ambitious and good work, but if you're going through this massive organization to try to get a press pass for the Olympics, the odds are like 99 to 1 huh. that you won't get it. I see. Oh, that so, is, that's frustrating. Yeah. So part of my ambition was to try to go to the Olympics, but to travel a bit more based mm -hmm. on the size of the paper and the budget of the paper. And so I started applying more toward the end of my tenure in Flagstaff for bigger and medium size and even large size newspapers, hoping mm -hmm. to get an interview. And I would look at the Associated Press Sports Editor's website. And I noticed in 2005 that a job had been listed for, uh, baseball reporter and desk editor looking for someone to cover the Japan Pro Baseball League, MPB, and mm -hmm. we need help on the copy desk several days a week. So I picked my interest based on a lot of freelance work that I had done covering spring training and the WNBA and other sports that had a Japanese angle. So with spring training in Arizona, there became opportunities to write about the growing mix of players who had left MPB and moved to MLB, Shigetoshi Hasegawa, Ichiro, eventually. Right. So I had a pretty good mix of published articles about baseball during spring training and then occasionally during the season. I would go to Phoenix for a couple of days and go to Diamondback games and write about players who, who were on other teams. So this helped me get the interest of the sports editor Mm -hmm. And when I sent my original resume and portfolio in 2005, expressing my interest in the job at the Japan Times, I was not hired, but I was one of the finalists. Mm -hmm. And it was encouraging that the editor liked my work and told me to keep doing what you're doing. We might have something in the future. But to get back to your question about Japan, so I had an interest in baseball and an interest in not just the MLB, people who were involved culturally who had come over from other countries to try to pursue their dreams. 
So I had written about the Japanese players quite a bit and done some freelance work for a Korean American magazine. And the, the Japan Times actually reposted a job in 2006, which was we have a basketball writer position opening up because the Basketball Japan League, nicknamed the BJ League, mm-hmm. had actually started in 2005. And the newspapers wanted to expand coverage of this league in English because it was in addition to what they were doing with sumo coverage, baseball, soccer, and they needed someone to focus on it more. And uh, so in the spring of 2006, an ad was posted on the APSC job board. And I was thinking, wow, this is interesting. It's actually posted again. Mm. So I, I, I reapplied and I had a phone interview with the sports editor, a gentleman that you're aware of named Jack Gallagher. And I was offered the position in the spring of 2005. And what was it like when you got there? Had you been to Japan before or was this your first time ever being there? It was my first time, and I got off the plane on July 4th, 2006, Uh and the first day was a very limited introduction, but I actually first stepped in the office at the old building on July 6th, two days later. So it was more like a meet and greet and fill out some paperwork, sign a contract, get a basic assignment of what you're going to be doing the next week. We want you to learn the computer system. We want you to get familiar with editing, how we do things. They had a very archaic computer system, like very, you had to memorize a lot of codes and it it wasn't very user-friendly, but trying to learn the computer system was was very challenging. So it was a very big crash course in doing that. And the basic idea was we want you to get familiar with editing before your first big assignment, which was the World Basketball Championship at the end of, at the end of August, it started in that year. And I went to Hiroshima for nine days. Mm-hmm. For there was four groups of in the first stage of the FIBA World Championship that summer. Twenty-four teams, I believe it's thirty-two now. Twenty-four teams that year, and there was four groups of uh, six nations. And I went to the Japan group, which also included Germany, and uh, New Zealand, and Angola was one of the teams as well. Mm-hmm. So I went to the first stage in uh, Hiroshima every day. Go from the hotel, go to the stadium. And it was a really fun time to be covering a global event, seeing guys like Dirk Nowitzki. He was still pretty early in his career, but he was a superstar. I I loved it, every minute of it. And I have to ask, though, you hadn't been to Japan before. Did you speak Japanese? Were you doing all your coverage in English? I know you were writing in English, but what about your interviews? I didn't have time to go to a language school in the States or in Japan. I was trying to study hiragana and katakana a little bit to learn the shorthanded writing, mm-hmm. which is sound-based. But if, if you're at the World Championship, a lot of the interviews are done with a mix, call it a mix zone or just a group interview. Okay. And generally speaking, there'll be an interpreter saying what was said. So that was really helpful. If there's a good interpreter, which most of them are for the bigger events, they know the vernacular or the lingo of sports. Right. If someone who's an academic if someone who only knows Japanese from an academic standpoint, they might not be very helpful in trying to describe the full court press right. or man-to-man defense or that kind of stuff. But generally speaking, if you're working at, at the world championship level event, they want the person who has good sports knowledge. So often they have a basketball background, hopefully. And so I wasn't really hindered 
too much by my lack of Japanese ability at the beginning, especially right. at, at the World Championship. With the BJ League, Ed, was, was that more of a challenge in terms of the language skills, or was that also, because it was a, a league, as I understand it, that was founded with the idea of being a more global league than the other Japanese yeah. pro league at the time. So did they have a lot of people who worked for each team that could speak English and that you could interview? Yeah, there was usually up to five players per team. And almost all of them had five that were generally Americans at the beginning. And I was there for the second season on. And the BJ League had six teams in season one, 05, 06. And the next year, eight. And they expanded nonstop for 11 seasons. Yes. 24 teams the last year. Certain teams had a lot better interpreters. Other teams were adequate at best, but there were always players to interview. A lot of teams have had, had American coaches along the way. A couple of big names I'll throw at you. Joe Bryant coached the Tokyo Apache for four years. Then a year after, then there was a one-year gap where a Japanese coach worked the coached the team, Moto Fumiaoki. After him, it was Bob Hill. Bill Cartwright coached the Osaka Evesa. Johnny Newman coached two different teams, Rising Fukuoka. Takamatsu Five Arrows, and Johnny Newman, he led the SEC in scoring the year after Pete Maravich did, after uh -huh. he did for three consecutive years. And he averaged 40.1 points a game wow. in his, was it his sophomore year? He only played two years. If I'm forgetting this, I, I should be punished, but <laughs> it might have been his junior year, but I, I believe yeah, it was you his sophomore you shouldn't be punished any more than that player for not passing the ball. 40 points a game, that's a lot of points. Yeah. You get that. He was a quintessential gunner, just like uh, Pistol Pete. Sure. And he played at Ole Miss. And the coach just let him shoot the ball. He took 35, 40 shots a Unbelievable. game. Unbelievable. And this is before the three-point line was in college. Yes, that is more, more impressive when you think about it, isn't it? But these, huh. are some of the these are some of the coaches that were over here. And, and you got to I learn from them? I did. It, it was mm -hmm. really fun. Yeah. That must have been great. And as you said, the BJ League was expanding each year and becoming more of a force. And then tell listeners about what happened, because I know you and I have you know talked about this before, but I want the listeners to understand there, there were two pro leagues at yeah. that time that you arrived in Japan. And then what happened in the mid-2000s? Yeah. Well, let's rewind for a moment. The Japan Basketball Association, starting in the 1960s, had a corporate league, which is hard for Americans probably to really grasp that this was really the top level of basketball, where you work a full-time job during the week as like a diesel mechanic or an airplane mechanic. In Japan, there wasn't a pro league that, that paid players as a full-time job. Yeah. Toyota has had a team since the couple years after World War II. Same with Mitsubishi, same with Toshiba. Baseball was in and of itself a separate thing. Baseball had a pro league that was well-established since 1950 mm -hmm. with a Pacific League as the upstart and the Central League going back even further yes. with teams, teams like the Yomiuri Giants. If you were a good baseball player, you can be drafted, you can sign a contract. That was your full-time work. That's right. Okay. Let's think of sports like rugby and soccer and basketball as three examples. And the philosophy was you're going to play these sports to give you, to help you maintain good health and to help your company have a good work harmony. 
Mm-hmm. I know the word wa, speaking to and reading about Robert Whiting, that concept of wa really helped carry the companies to have these corporate leagues. And basketball had corporate teams for decades. And there was an ebb and flow with the number of teams. When the economy was good, there was more teams. When companies had lost profit and were looking to invest money in other aspects of the operation, maybe new machines, maybe a new plant, maybe just hiring new employees to work on the assembly line. Oftentimes the sports teams would be downsized or be done away with. And as the economy struggled in the nineties, a lot of the corporate teams folded and a lot of the good players were lifetime employees of Toyota, Panasonic, Mitsubishi. They weren't necessarily guys on the assembly line, but they had like PR jobs in the company or they made appearances or to promote something. So this kind of corporate philosophy didn't maybe didn't necessarily help the sport develop competitively on the international scene. In the early 2000s, one of the former national team coaches, Toshimitsu Kawachi, he became a general manager and president of the Niigata Alberex BB for basketball. Mm-hmm. And this became the first full-fledged sports company to establish a basketball franchise that was not under a corporate monolith or mm-hmm. just a giant corporation like Toyota. This company also established a soccer team that became part of the J League, which outgrew the, the corporate model of soccer, where you were becoming a, a franchise based on your geographic region. So the BJ League was a offshoot of the, the JBL, which did not want to reform the, the way it operated. So a couple of the teams lost their patience and thought, we want to um, try something new. We think that there'll be enough money and interest to establish a different model based on the North American model of the NBA. If you're in New York, you're going to have a corporate owner, a hometown owner, and maybe investors based locally, like the Knicks, mm-hmm. like the Lakers, like the Dallas Mavericks. So the Niigata Alberex and the Saitama Broncos announced that they were defecting from the Japan Basketball Association's league, the, the JBL, mm-hmm. and it created a bit of a stir. Why are you leaving? Is this really a workable model? Mm-hmm. And uh, they started out with six teams, other franchises based in Oita, in Osaka, in Tokyo, and they developed interest by announcing, hey, we got this new league where there's an unlimited number of foreigners that can come in and play and come in and compete. So that was the model that was established. Because and, the, uh, the previous league, the corporate league that you mentioned, the JBL, they had a limit on the number of foreigner, foreigners that could yeah, be on the court one, at any one time. It was one player on the court at any time. And generally speaking, most of the teams only had one foreigner. Mm-hmm. Some of them had two. So in, in theory, the idea was by bringing in more Americans, we're mm-hmm. going to challenge the Japanese players every day in practice. Mm-hmm. And if the coaches are going to play you, you have to prove that you're worthy to play. So it created a real challenge. It created a new landscape for the sport. And so then fast forward to the 2010s, the JBL and the BJ League are both professional basketball leagues. Yeah. And what happens? When the BJ League was established in 2005, it was not under the 
umbrella of the JBA, the National Governing Body. Yes. That means that may sound strange, like to listeners in the U.S., where USA Basketball and the NBA really function on separate calendars and separate rules, so to speak. But FIBA, the International Basketball Federation, has as one of its bylaws that each country can only have one top league. And from the get-go, the BJ League really was a top league. Maybe not with only six teams, because at that time, the the JBL had eight. Mm -hmm. But after a couple years, it was clear that the level of the players and the level of play was growing and getting very good in comparison to the JBL. But it was not part of the establishment. And it wasn't welcomed by the JBA because, again, it was established as two teams that had defected. So it was viewed as a pariah. But the the FIBA looked at this as a really odd circumstance. You've got two pro leagues in a country that really needs one pro league. And it was in defiance of the laws of the governing of international sport as defined by FIBA. Mm-hmm. So FIBA tried to negotiate. And first of all, they wanted the BJ League to be under the governance of the JBA. And I think at first FIBA thought this can be a developmental league, sort of like the NBA G League, or years ago, the NBA Development League, as it was called. But again, you look at the way the the BJ League operated, it was expanding every year. A lot of ex-NBA, a lot of former, you know, Division I players were coming here. And players like David Benoit were playing there. A couple years later, Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf came over mm-hmm. to play for the Kyoto Hanaris. And he, remember, he was a really good NBA player. So FIBA tried to get the two sides on the same page. It looks bad for the sport to have two different entities competing for fans, for the media, for the players. There's no clear path to becoming a top player. And at one point, the sitting prime minister of Japan, Taro Aso, was actually the the head honcho of the Japan Basketball Association. He was the head leader, but he didn't have to go to -to day-to-day operations. Mm -hmm. It was sort of like from his previous work in sports governance. So think of it like you've got people flying in from Switzerland, from from FIBA, Mm -hmm. meeting with the, the prime minister and other governing body heads of the commissioner Kawachi of the BJ League and people that were presidents or chairman of Toyota, Toshiba, Panasonic, Mitsubishi. And it was a very odd dynamic that they, they can't agree to any kind of, you know, coexistence where the BJ League is just in and of itself, not in any way associated with the JBL yes. or with the JBA. And this went on for several years where FIBA issued warnings Mm-hmm. You have to have some kind of partnership where if this pro league has a hundred Japanese players or more, let's say there's 10 teams, 10 Japanese players per team. That's a hundred players. Fast forward years later, 200 Japanese players. You got all these people employed in the league, coaches, trainers, media, you know, PR people, business staff. These are all Japanese people that are working in a pro league in their own home country. Mm-hmm. and they have no recognition by the Japan Basketball Association, this didn't settle well with FIBA headquarters in, in Switzerland. So yes. they issued warnings, which nothing came of the warnings. 
And eventually they said, you have a deadline. You have three months, two months, one month. You have to work out some kind of national pyramid, which is the top league, which is the secondary league. And there was no agreement in place. So in 2014, after years and years of trying to get, you know, these guys on the same page, FIBA suspended the uh, Japan Basketball Association. They couldn't be involved in international events. And they had to, in order to be accepted back in, they had to overhaul and restructure the entire governance of, of the JBA, which was an international embarrassment because at that time, the women's national team had already qualified for the Rio Olympics. Yes, and that was a big issue, as I understand it, from talking to some other people involved in Japanese basketball. But the, the women were successful, as you say, in, in competing internationally and had been successful competing internationally for many years. They hadn't as yet won a medal in the Olympic Games, but they had done well at, in many international competitions. And I remember reading in the autobiography of Coach Tar Vanderveer of Stanford University, who was one of my guests a little while back on this show, that she was most impressed by the Japanese women's team in 1996 at the Atlanta Olympics because they were able to really give that uh, U.S. Olympic team a run for its money when they played them. And of course, that team that Coach Vanderveer led was the, the Olympic team that helped usher in the WNBA. They went on this world tour before the Olympics and oh, then right. won the gold medal and they won 60 straight games. They didn't lose the entire time they played together for an entire year. And so I thought that was pretty remarkable, this incredibly dominant international team that literally never lost. And, and, and their and, coach and said that the Japanese women's team was the most impressive team that she had seen. Didn't the, the WNBA start the next year, 97? That's right. And so she was credited with helping to professionalize women's basketball in the, in the U.S. But of course, in Japan, as in the United States, sports are very much a male realm. And I think as one gender studies expert down at USC calls it a male preserve. And so I think, correct me if I'm wrong here, Ed, but my sense is that in Japan, there are many in the basketball world that don't really like the fact that the Japanese women are better internationally than the Japanese men. Would you agree with that? There are some, there's a jealousy factor in place, but I think in this era, we're talking about the, in the era that Yuta Watanabe and Rui Hachimura are both in the NBA. Yes. I don't think there's a lack of appreciation of, of both the men's and women's success on the- Oh, definitely now. I was thinking yeah. more about 10, 15 years ago when the women were doing well internationally, like you said, in Rio even. I think now things have changed a lot in the last five years, haven't they? The FIBA sanctions and then the merging of those two leagues into what is now called the B League yeah. seems to have been a real watershed moment for Japanese men's basketball. Yeah. So I'd like to hear your thoughts on that merger. I'm not going to personally blame the former prime minister Aso being maybe set in his ways, but let's say, let's use 2010 as a benchmark. Okay. I would say, generally speaking, like the over 60 generation at that point, who had most of the key positions as team presidents within the league, you know, board of directors, that kind of role, a lot of the older uh, generation were really set in their ways and really didn't see the benefits of a merger or even the overhaul of the structure of the way the JBA operated. Mm -hmm. So you got to give credit to the FIBA and also the people involved in the task force to overhaul not only the way the leagues operate, but the way the JBA operates. 
And people were brought in from outside of basketball, from other sports, people that, you know, were involved in other businesses from sports lawyers and people that had a wide range of skills. I think they made a really good task force. Mm -hmm. And you got to give them credit for seeing that this is really the time to capitalize on the momentum of Tokyo being selected for the Olympics. It's really mm -hmm. now or never to merge these deadlines of building venues for the Olympics, planning for the Olympics, but also planning to overhaul sports, basketball in, in this case. And so basically the entire board of the JBA was cleaned out. Mm -hmm. Fresh faces were brought in. Not all of them were 25 or 45 or 35. Some older people were involved. It was really a new era, wipe the slate clean, work with the teams a bit differently. For example, one of the criteria for being in the first division of the B League, which has three divisions, in some ways like English Premier League soccer, mm -hmm. you have a top division based on economics and the size of the stadium and the level of play and a second and third division. But what they did was some of the key criteria you have to have one primary stadium for 75, 80% of your games, a primary arena for basketball. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it needs to be a 5,000 seat capacity arena. You may think of that as something out of Mars, mm -hmm. but a lot of these games in the BJ League and the JBL, they were using gyms, 1,000 people, 2,000 people. And sometimes they were playing up to 10 or 12 home arenas per season based on the way that the sport operated, where you don't own a gym, but if you're a pro basketball team, say in Guma Prefecture, you're really out in the rural area, you're using the same gym that is being used by badminton teams, volleyball teams, handball teams, indoor field hockey, perhaps, lacrosse. And you're basically renting the gym through the local city or the local prefecture. And if the pro league or the, the Japan basketball association really doesn't have a working agreement with the uh, local government to guarantee a certain gym is used 20 times a year, you have no pull, you have no influence in getting a gym as your home gym. So by getting cooperative agreement in place and by the league becoming having some gravitas when they established a new pro league, it really helped the fan base too know where the team is playing. And that helped to attract a larger number of fans, I would think. And yeah, yeah and it makes a lot of sense. It became more comfortable for the media too, knowing where the team is playing. Mm -hmm. And if you're a pro player, also having you become familiar with the surroundings, right? Yes, of course. So that was also important. And so basketball for the men becomes much more of a professional endeavor after the BJ League in 2006, but then uh, much more so when the B League starts after this merger a decade later. So that's five years ago now. And of course, as you mentioned, there are several Japanese male players who have been very successful recently in playing in the NBA. I know you've recently written about one of those players, Rui Hachimura, who's okay. arguably Japan's best player right now. And I really enjoyed your article that you had in the uh, Spokesman Review about Hachimura. So I wonder if you can tell the listeners about Hachimura and what you think is so significant about him to Japanese basketball. Okay, there's a couple things. I might bounce around from chronologically here, but one, he was the first Japanese player drafted in the first round of the NBA draft. And 
you go back to his days at Gonzaga and he progressively became a lot better in his three seasons there. He, he left after his junior season when he won the Julius Irving Award. If you think of who Julius Irving was and what his career represented, just an absolute legend. And yeah, absolutely. a couple of years ago, an award was named after him by the United States Basketball Writers Association, I which see. is a fraternity of college hoop writers and also some broadcasters. But okay. Hachimura was selected for this award after his junior season. And as a freshman, he played sparingly, but he played in the national championship game as well. That's right. When, when Gonzaga lost. For, for the Japanese fan, the Japanese media, the fact that Hachimura was at a powerhouse university playing for one of the greatest coaches in the last 50 years, Mark Few, they've gone to the NCAA tournament now 20 plus years. That's a remarkable consecutive streak. And Absolutely. Uh, you think of where Spokane is, it's a pretty, uh, what, 100,000 people, 80,000 people, I want to say. It's a pretty small city compared to L.A. or New York or some of these other big major markets for college basketball. But he became a player where, you know, his highlights were shown on the news. Japanese media were traveling to follow him on the road, showing up at practices to... Uh, for magazines, for sports newspapers, for big national newspapers, he became a really big story. Absolutely. And even, even before that, he left his hometown of Toyama on the Sea of Japan, and he went to a high school in, in Sendai called Meisei High School, where he helped the high school win three back-to-back-to-back national Winter Cup championships. Hachimura really put himself on the national radar by playing great in those three high school events. Hachimura, his father is from Benin, mm -hmm. the uh, West African nation. The fact that he is biracial, he is Japanese, his mother's Japanese, and he's African. That also, that's a different dynamic than a lot of Japanese athletes because that's a very homogenous country. And how is he received in Japan? His biracial ethnicity. What are people saying about that in Japan? I would say he's on the short list of the 10 most popular athletes. If you count in Japan and overseas, he has certainly helped grow the sport and make it cool among casual sports fans. And the hardcore fan has only grown stronger in their interest in the sport. Basketball media coverage has grown. Him and Yuta Watanabe, who plays for the Toronto Raptors, mm -hmm. they both certainly helped in that regard. There, There is some ugliness. There is, uh, on occasion, racism and the nastiness of social media, mm. where he'll be called uh, expletive, he'll be called the N-word. His younger brother also plays college basketball, and him and his brother have both been, you know, insulted on social media. It, it, it does exist. I don't, I can't quantify it by how many times a week uh, or a sure. month, but it exists. But they've definitely helped both him and his brother, you know, help open people's eyes, you know, that they were born in Japan. They grew up in Japan. They speak Japanese very well. This is their homeland. It's like Naomi Osaka. Yes. Uh, in, a, in a different way, because she grew up in the States. So she's half Japanese. This is the reality of who they are. That's right. And opening people's minds in Japan, which, as you say, is... Maybe not as homogenous as it once was, but the mentality of some people in Japan is that the country is still very homogenous and some people you know, want it to be homogenous. And so opening those minds is something that I think Osaka and Hachimura have definitely done. So thank you for sharing that, Ed. And what about Hachimura and uh, Watanabe and the team, the national team in this previous Olympics? Obviously you have the women, the Japanese women 
their first ever medal, a silver medal in the mm -hmm. Tokyo Olympics, which is obviously historic. And so I have a two-part question for you, Ed. It's one, what do you think that the silver medal victory, that or the silver medal acquisition, I guess you'd say, for the women will, what kind of impact do you suspect that will have on basketball in Japan, particularly for young Japanese girls? And also, what are people saying about the performance of the Japanese men's national team? I know they lost three games, but they played some pretty fierce competition. And it seems like from my viewing of the games, they performed rather well. I think the women's team's medal will spark greater participation numbers and also fan interest in this. And I would say from junior high school on, I would say if you live in the local neighborhood and your daughter plays or your neighbor plays, I think the games are going to grow in terms of interest in, in, in terms of the crowds and support. Maybe local companies are going to start sponsoring the team more, travel teams, mm -hmm. and maybe help buy like new uniforms or uh, sponsor the bill, help pay for the sports club for you go to work out and use the exercise equipment. I think you'll see people doing that more frequently for across the board for women's basketball. I also think that the WJBL, which is mo more frequently called the W League now, I think it's going to grow in terms of media coverage and also with maybe better facilities in some cases, you might see a couple new gyms built. Mm -hmm. I, I think you'll see more foreign players brought over where generally speaking, there hasn't been for many years, there was a ban on imports on the women's side. But that rule no longer exists across the board. Mm -hmm. But I think they're going to see the benefits of more frequent competition with and against foreign players. So I think it's going to help the sport grow. So what? So Ed, so it sounds to me like what you are seeing on the ground is that basketball will be will have a bright future for the girls and young boys in Japan, and and that the national teams for both men and women seemingly would continue to improve their performance at international play. Which, of course, raises the prospect that the women's team will win a gold medal someday, potentially, and that the men's team might win a medal someday themselves. And I know just from my own research on Japanese basketball that that medal that has been so elusive for both the men's and women's team for so long, I know that is really the prized possession that a lot of Japanese people who are involved in basketball are seeking. So. I'm curious how you would sum up the state of Japanese basketball now. What are you seeing? What do you expect going forward? I think there's a lot of positive synergy on both the men's and women's side. And it involves the different groups that are interested for different reasons. You have sports, you have sports sponsors, you have coaches, players, media, fans, and the sports community as a whole, the governing bodies. Each prefecture has a basketball association. You know, mm -hmm. organizing mini basketball. I think you're going to see a registration spike mm -hmm. for players to join teams, to join clubs. And the power of the media in terms of hooking people on sports, getting them mm -hmm. interested. And the Olympics is such a 24-7 force. I think it leaves a big impression on kids watching the national teams. What is the impact of seeing Hachimura carrying the flag at the opening ceremony of the Olympics? That's incredibly important for two reasons. It shows him as a well-respected figure, and it sheds light on the biracial nature of his upbringing. Mm -hmm. Same thing with Naomi Osaka. So I think they were both great choices in that regard. Now, the women's national team, their involvement is a progression of the success they've had yes. over the last decade in building a consistent national team 
that can compete at the Asia Championships, but can also qualify for the Olympics. And the improved nature of the WJBL, it has gotten better. And as far as the men's national team, it's the first appearance in the Olympics since 1976. So multiple generations of players and fans have no recollection of what that was like back in the Montreal Games. That's right. So to get back in the games and for the players to test themselves against Slovenia and against Spain, that, that's a big deal. Yes, two great teams and, and Argentina as well. I think they played Argentina against... as well, yeah. And all three of those nations have fantastic basketball teams and, and many NBA players. And, and basketball cultures. That's right. And so for the Japanese men's team to compete or to come, you know, I know Hachimura had some several outstanding performances in those games. But for the Japanese national team to perform well, even though they lost those games, I think it's a promising moment for Japanese basketball. And so it seems to me, Ed, that you're really looking at, and you've been covering for 15 years now, the professionalization and also the commercialization of basketball in Japan. And, yeah. and it's really quite fascinating to talk to you and learn about your experiences covering it and what it's been like. And I, I know I've mentioned this to you many times before, but I really admire your work and I've benefited greatly from reading your work over the years, first at the Japan Times, but now as a sports editor of Japan Forward. And you are the sports editor, you're not just the basketball reporter now. And so I'm curious, you've had a life in sports, you've been a sports uh -huh. reporter in various places, now you're the sports editor of Japan Forward. You've written this great book about one of the great sports writers of all time. But what is the power of sports to you, Ed? I think there are a few things in life that connect people across all cultures, religions, age groups, economic groups, education levels, etc. Maybe food, maybe music, maybe movies. Sports can connect people in ways that politics never will. So I think that's the first thing. And there's a level of enjoyment that sports can bring. And when people have nothing else in common, it's one of the few things that can bridge those gaps. So that's one thing. And then, you know, memories of sports, they can carry on through your lifetime and your father's memories, your grandfather's memories, your mother's memories, aunts, uncles, cousins, your best friend. All those people's stories can be intertwined through a random game, a random athlete, a random team, a big event, a little league game. There's really no boundaries when it comes to how people can enjoy sports, watching, playing, talking about it, reading about it. That's what I believe. Absolutely. Well said, and thank you so much. I really appreciate you being my guest today. And it's always a pleasure to talk to you. And I, I look forward to our next uh, catch up down the road. I'm sure I'll have more questions about Japanese basketball for you someday soon. I hope you don't mind. Let me give you one last, what I think is a revealing nugget about the growing interest in Japanese basketball. Mm -hmm. Let's just say from the opening ceremony of the Olympics up until today, which was July 23rd until today is August 7th. It's August 18th in Japan. Yes. So roughly a month has passed. So Japan Forward publishes a lot of stories each week about all different things, sports, culture, government, politics, security issues, mm -hmm. food, manga, movies, book reviews for several days now. And I think this metric is based on a couple of things. When something appears on a website and it attains the level of what's trending now. I don't think you could say it's the most read story necessarily, but it involves things that are shared on social media or things that are emailed. Something is shared on Facebook and LinkedIn, Twitter, something that, that, that gets people's attention. 
Okay. And there's a sustained level of interest. The most trending store for the last several days mm-hmm. has been the gold medal game story, USA versus Japan women's basketball. Is that right? And it's been at the top of the list now for five or six days. And that's despite the fact that there were many Japanese teams that won gold yeah. medal. And the fact that Japan lost that match. It was the first medal that Japan ever won in Olympic basketball. But slowly but surely, it grew from like number 10 on the list to eight, seven, but it's been number one for several days now. So I'm happy that it has become a story that has grew in interest around the world. That's a very positive sign. Absolutely. That's a great story. And I appreciate you sharing it with my listeners. And I look forward to catching up with you again down the road sometime soon. I hope you enjoyed what I had to say. I did. I learned a lot. And let's talk soon. Have a good rest. Thanks. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. to them as much as I am enjoying making them. Many thanks to Ed Odevin for being my guest, and don't forget to check out his work at japanforward.com. Have a great day, everyone.